Growing up with her family in Bolivia, do you think that Jan Hershkowitz ever dreamed she'd become a successful entrepreneur and business owner in America? I don't. Having already gotten her professional start, Jan got a call from her dad that he needed help temporarily in the business that he acquired called PRL. She left a promising career in an electronics manufacturer in Chicago and traveling home for a temporary assignment, she thought to help her dad for a few months. Tragically, his sudden death soon after her arrival set the stage for Jan investing 32 plus years leading the business from a small, non-destructive testing business into a high-tech, vertically integrated defense contractor making mission-critical components for the nuclear Navy. Jan generously shares candid comments with us on what it was like to lead the most successful company in an all-male dominated industry, how she kept her perspective between her professional and personal roles, and how she's been coping with, get this, being a passive investor in a business that she was the entrepreneur owner manager for, for multiple decades. Here we are. It's, uh, what's the day's date? This is February 24th, 2021. And you're this successful entrepreneur, owner, manager. When you were a kid growing up, did you think you were going to be an entrepreneur? Yes. What's funny when I was a kid was I grew up in Bolivia with my sister who works at PRL and my family, but we grew up in Bolivia which is probably the one of the poorest, well, it is one of the poorest countries in Latin America. And we went to an American school, but we had this mean teacher that if you forgot your ruler, you were in trouble. So I used to rent rulers for like 50 centavos or half a peso. And then I also had a lot of American comic books that I would rent out and then they'd give them back. And I would, you know, I didn't charge much for it, obviously, but I, I always had little little businesses going on, especially when I was little, it was a little bit harder in the States because <laughs> pretty much everybody had what they needed. But I, so, I, I always had these little things going. And I, I think I always felt I would be an entrepreneur. I love that. So, yeah. so did you, um, how did you come to be in Bolivia, Jan? I don't think I ever heard that story. Well, it was an interesting story. My dad went there during the war to escape Vienna. But it, it was funny, his father married, met his wife at Viennese, Viennese Waltz School, waltzing. And uh, yeah, and she was Catholic, he was Jewish and they baptized, my, my father was baptized Lutheran. So ah. it was quite the mixture. And then he went to the States, he had his choice of going to the States to get for a college degree or, or, or a, a career as a professional soccer player. And he chose to go to college and he had an aunt in Louisville. So he went to the University of Louisville and got his degree there in civil engineering. And then he went back to Bolivia. And I think the story goes that he knew that the president of the Bolivian oil company was going to be at the box at a soccer game. He took all the money he had left and got the seat next to him. And by the end of the soccer game, he had a full scholarship back to the States to get a degree in petroleum engineering. And Penn State was the only university that had his fraternity and a petroleum engineering degree, which he was a triangle. And he met my mother there at a party at, Penn, at the Penn State fraternity. Now, my mother always said, my mother said she, 
he was standing next to a tall guy. That's how they met. Although my dad was easily her height, but so my mom was also very tall. Would your dad, would he have described himself as Bolivian, Bolivian American? Probably not, but my dad was a chameleon. He spoke three languages with no discernible foreign accent. Wow. So he fit in wherever he went. And so when, how old were you when you came to America to, to live in America? I was 12 and my sister was 14, which it's a hard age to move. Yeah. Especially I think as a female, but it, it was meant to be, but we all just wanted to stay in Bolivia. But at that point it was the land of revolutions. Yeah. And there was a Bolivian revolution. The country went way, way to the left. My mother, sister, and I left earlier so we could still get out. And then he joined us about six months later. Well, that must have been scary times. Yeah, well, there was a huge revolution that he was involved in, supposedly, when he was there because he was a liaison between the American government and the Bolivian government. But we won't get into specifics on that one because it's far too so, long a story. So um, you spoke English by the time you came to America? Yes, when I... Spanish was my first language. Yeah. But I, I my English don't don't get me wrong is by far better, but I used to mix them up and my sister would have to translate for me. Except <laughs> yeah. when I wasn't angry, then they said it was all Spanish, but it's just a much better language to get angry in, I suppose. Well, you mentioned like when you were a kid you thought you might be an entrepreneur or a business owner. Were you and your dad worked for a petroleum company. Was he an entrepreneur or did he work for a large bureaucratic type company? Well, at that time, we, we lived in different cities in Bolivia. By the time we left, he was actually working for a civil engineering company, and he was project manager, and he had thousands of people under him, but he was responsible for building the road that opened up Bolivia, basically, across Bolivia, and also he, what I, my favorite story is that he built the uh, La Paz airport. That was his project, and it's, La Paz is the highest city in the world at 12,000 feet. Wow. But I re it was very tricky because you have to go into the middle of the Andes and come down. And I remember asking him, how do you equate for the altitude? Because the resistance is by far less. And he said, Jan, we just made the runway very, very, very long. And I said, okay. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do you, um, do you ever uh, want to go back? Yeah, my sister went back. I, I Maybe it's something that I'll do now. Yeah. But it, it's not exactly the safest place in the world, especially for a gringa. But my sister went back about three years ago and really liked it. But as long as I was running PRL, it, it was just not an option. It was not an option because why? Dangerous. Yeah. So it may mean for uh, kidnap risk and those kinds of risks. There's all kinds of risks. And the president of Bolivia at the time was an who was indigenous was a coca farmer so oh, yeah. there, there was a lot of and he was very very tight with uh, hugo chavez so there was i mean yeah the the president of venezuela so there was an awful lot of risk i would think going down there but my sister said as soon as she got off the plane she felt right at home wow that must be fun yeah i'll go back one day now i have the chance so, so you came to America. Did your dad um, then um, begin working at what is now PRL? Well, my dad came to the States. It was a hard time for all of us, especially because it was cold. He came in the winter. None of us were very happy about being there, but he 
he wasn't sure what he wanted to do. I know he was looking at different options, but his fraternity brother from Penn State lived in Lebanon. And at that time, the president of Piero had passed away un unexpectedly in a vacation in the Virgin Islands. So he approached my dad to buy PRL. At the time, it, was just an, it wasn't just an x-ray machine. There was about 12 employees and PRL was at a different location. And PRL stands for Pennsylvania Radiographic Laboratories. And they were doing x-rays for the nuclear power industry. And that's how it all, it all started with an x-ray machine, which we actually have in storage. I think hopefully down the road, maybe one day they'll clean it up, put it in a nice big corporate glass lobby and say it all started with an x-ray machine. That's my hope, but who knows? And, and then do I remember that, so as you uh, graduated from high school, you went off to college, that you ended up somewhere maybe in Chicago working? No, I ended up in working in Mexico. Oh. The what truth be told, I didn't interview very well. <laughs> and uh, I ended up getting a job in Mexico, which worked out very well for me because I spoke Spanish. So I worked for Zenith, Zenith TVs, remember the old Zenith TVs? Sure. Yeah, they were one of the first companies to start these maquilladoras in Mexico. Oh, yeah. So I ended up working as a financial analyst in, in um, Matamoros, Mexico, and I lived in Brownsville and drove across the border every day. And then I got transferred to Juarez, Mexico, because they were starting up a cabinet manufacturing plant for all the TVs there. Right. And I lived in El Paso and crossed over to Juarez every day. Right. And then after that, I got transferred to Chicago. So you're. Are we talking about uh, the early 1980s? Yeah. 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 I remember those days when all those maquiladora um, uh, plants started. I guess that was because of NAFTA, right? I think it was. I would think so. I, I, I wasn't sure. I just knew there was a bunch of them <laughs> yeah. and I drove over every day, but they, they had a lot of plants in Mexico. So how did you get from Zenith in Chicago back to PRL in Pennsylvania? Well, my dad had, had cancer. He got colorectal cancer and it, he came out to Chicago. He flew out to Chicago, which I thought was really nice and asked him if I'd consider coming home and working for him. Oh, so I, mean, I you like say, hey, dad, I'm off to my own career here. I'm a career woman. I'm living in the city. And I love it. And I, I was in Mexico. And now I'm here. I'm on my way up the corporate ladder. You hit the nail on the head. That's what I've at times felt like saying. But uh, I chose to go ahead and come home and work with my father. But did he say, Jan, I really need you to help me? As much as he could. He was my dad, and but it, it, I just was so touched that he came out, flew out to Chicago to chit chat with me. But at the time, I had a great career at, at Zenith. I was, uh, I was in charge. Of, I was financial manager of one of the divisions, a hundred eighty-nine million dollar division, which was pretty the Switchmore Power Supply division, which was pretty big at the time. Yeah. But yeah, I, I thought I had left Lebanon in the area for good. No reflection on the area, but I just like cities. I'm more of a city person. Yeah. But, you know, it's very lucky I came back because, unfortunately, I worked with him just a couple of weeks, and then the cancer came back, and he passed away. But we opened the foundry after he passed. So when you came back, how many uh, employees were there at the company? 
roughly? You'd be surprised. Over 200. Really? And, yeah. and, that, and that was because what was their business model at that point? Well, it was PR, it was, it was PRL industries, which is the upgrading facility and two machine shops. Right. But the foundry industries, you know, we opened the foundry after he passed, but the foundry industry was very, very competitive. So we kept improving and improving and we were able to probably uh, more than triple the sales at the time with, with fewer people right now. So, so, so I'm just trying to think to myself about how, what your mindset was, because you're there in uh, doing, you know, being a financial analyst in the Maquiladora plant, you get moved to Chicago, you think you're on the way up the corporate ladder. Um, this is my, my words. Your dad comes and explains to you kind of what's happening. You're, you're emotionally moved by that, but you still must have this pull. The other side of you must have said, yeah, but I was going to do this thing in the city. Okay, you move back to Pennsylvania where you thought you were leaving for good. Your dad, unfortunately, passes away quickly. Now what? Make it work. I'm and not you, one to look back, and my father taught me that. I never, ever, ever look back. Once you make a decision, you make that decision, and you do it the best you can. And so was your family the 100% owner of PRL by that point? Yes. It was my father and my mother yeah. at that point. So when your father gone, that your mother and your sister and you and your 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 mindset was, I got to make this work now. Absolutely. There, wow. Failure is not an option. I think that's a NASA quote. Plus, <laughs> if you take the PRL team, nobody does anything alone. But to, to say another quote, the PGA tour, the tour quote, quote for the PGA, these guys are good. Yeah, I was blessed. You know, it takes it takes a team. Don't ever think you can do anything by yourself. But you know, ultimately, you're final one responsible. But well, so so. Um I had the good luck of meeting you several years ago. We became friends. And so forgive me if this is a personal uh, question, but here you are in the 1980s. Again, my vocabulary, maybe you wouldn't say it this way, but I'll say it. And you are a professional woman in um, what is most of highly male dominated industry. I don't know, but I'm guessing a highly male-dominated Oh, company. still is, still is. Okay. And so help me understand some of your thought process of working through that. It was, you're going to laugh because I think at the time, if you go back to that time period, yeah. I think it was harder being a female in middle corporate America where you have people above you and below you, then when you're the CEO, if somebody has a problem, it's not my problem. Ultimately, I'm the one in charge. So, you know, was I tested? Absolutely. Especially in shop meetings. But when you, if you shut it down, I mean, people come to the table. If somebody has a problem with my gender, I'm not going to lose sleep over it, or I didn't at the time. It must have been many times when you were in important meetings within the business, within the company, or even in your industry outside of the company where you were the only woman in the room. Totally. But my, my career at Zenith started that way. 
I remember being in Juarez, Mexico, and we did an off-site thing, and it was 35 men and myself. So, but the, the where where in retrospect, I've thought about this more lately than I did at the time. I, I, I never even thought about it at the time. It was this is what has to be done and it shall be done. And nobody was going to intimidate me. Nobody. To this day, nobody intimidates me. Now, hopefully I'll get softer as I'm not working. But no, no, no. <laughs> Just, no I wouldn't count on that. No, no. Okay, so so failure wasn't an option. You had to make it work. I get that. I'm just trying to put myself in your shoes in the mid 1980s. You made a very interesting point, though, that actually, as a woman, in you might be, you might feel the handcuffs a little more in a corporate job where you had certain uh, mores up and down the organization in a hierarchical organization compared to being the CEO of a family-owned business. Right. Now, where I had issues with with the bank. Tell me about that. Why was that an issue? Well, at one time, defense spending was cut totally, totally. And it was under Clinton. And we went from building numerous summaries a year to none. And all of a sudden, we, we went from being, gosh, it was like we went from being 80% defense down to 20% defense. Then we had a drought period and we had just opened the foundry. I think our debt to net worth ratio was like six to one, if you can imagine. And the bank froze our credit line with no warning, with absolutely no warning. And then they came out to talk to me and I had I went to my mother and I had to borrow a lot of money from her that she still had. It was a lot at the time. So I owed my mother's future basically had the frozen credit line, but banks I found are always slow to react. Also always make bankers think they're important as they think they are, but that's beside the point. But uh, banks yeah, were, if they could do anything else, they would be. Yeah, exactly. So, so why, exactly. You, why? I remember throwing the keys in the ashtray, all the keys <laughs> in our conference room, it's funny. And so, throwing them and going out the door and say, gentlemen, if you can run this business better than I can be my guest. They also put somebody on the board to run PRL. And you I, mean someone I from slammed the, the door and went into my office and I'm thinking, oh, my God, what have I just done? And then about a couple minutes later, I heard tap, tap, tap on the door and I was so relieved. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you think that the bank was trying to accomplish in their own mind? by freezing the credit line. I think they were setting us up for failure so they could put the gentleman on the board they put to run it. And so, and you dealt with him for a period of months? I never even dealt with him. Oh. Again, by the time they started to react to PRL's situation, we were already getting better and better and better. And I, I remember telling him that I could get a job anywhere and that the uh, headline on the local paper would be, such and such bank, which is no longer in business, shuts down profitable female-owned business. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's great. But it was a tough time. I mean, it, our debt to net worth was horrific. As I said, it was like five to one. I owed my mom all the monies. I remember putting in my pension from Zenith to make it work. But it. But the one thing is, the employees, all the great employees. The ones that really believed in it stuck with us and we worked together as a team. And I've always been very, very lucky that 
I've had managers that challenged me and I've always had at least one close senior manager that we could just talk about the situation, throw out the different options and make it work without looking back, decide what we needed to do and go forward. So I was so lucky. I, I'm just lucky. Jen, I have some, I've wanted to do this interview for so long. I have so many ways to go in it because I have so many interesting questions or interesting to me that I'd like to ask you about. Well, one of the things that you bring up is your team. And one of the things I noticed is, you know, it's sort of axiomatic that, you know, in business, you'd like your team to act as owners kind of in a way. And yet you and your sister were the owners of the business and your team really weren't owners, but they acted like owners. How did you make that happen? Well, first of all, I think they know that I know there's times they probably want to knock me in the middle of next week, but. I think they know that I care. You have to have a big heart, but you have to be fair. Now, one of the challenges with PRL is that quality is first. No matter how long it takes, no matter how over budget it is, it has to be done properly. I mean, most of the castings are going on nuclear submarines. Lives are at stake. So that makes it a little bit more difficult but we've changed our philosophy a lot over the years into getting the team concepts. And if there's a big problem, Ron, my production manager at the time, we put together a team and we'd even do it on the finance end, but even the person doing the job from the shop floor could be on the team all the way up to myself or the production manager, or we really tried to listen. We did a lot with lean. We had the grinders basically using shadow boards, design their own grinding booths. And I always, always tried that if somebody gave somebody on the floor their word that we would stick to it, but don't play favorites. It's so much easier to be respected than liked. I know there were times, like I said, e even with customers, I, I thank God I was a female because if I was a male, they would have beat me up. <laughs> You mean because you were able to get away with saying some things gently as a female that wouldn't have been able to get away with as a male? Absolutely. Absolutely. Plus, I, I think even with a female taking over the father's business, if it's a son, I think sometimes you get into testosterone battles. Yeah. But I remember several times just sitting there, thank God I'm a female because Lord only knows what their reaction would have been. And I've also tried to stay very calm and even keeled. Somebody once told me when you yell, you can't think. Mm, Don't lose advice. it. Just stay calm. So so um, what you just said about, um, you know, first of all, it starts with your heart and a caring attitude. And if you have a caring attitude, people maybe will understand why you're so passionate about that. Where did you learn that? I don't know. I, maybe my father was the same way, but you also have to be tough, but fair. And well, you need to, I mean, we had, a, you, you were down there. What a great big family we had. Yes. And we cared about each other. And sometimes we were a wayward family. Sometimes we weren't, but everybody in that PRL team is considered family. Yeah. So um, going back a little bit to when you were with Zenith, were, were you a good employee? Pretty good. I was always a bit of a smart ass. Even in school, I was the kid in the last row making their side comments. But 
I, I I did what had to be done in terms of getting the budgets together. And it, it, my, my first job was quite challenging because it was all in pesos and dollars. And we had to predict future rates, currency exchange rates. But I would like to think, I think they look, would look back and say, yeah, she did a really good job, asked the right questions. But I would work a lot of hours. I was always a bit of a workaholic. So you did the great job on the content of the work, and you said you're a bit of a wise ass. And so you you weren't necessarily accepting the Zenith culture. I never even thought about that. But we've all, even at PRL, we've always laughed. You've got to be able to laugh. <laughs> and I think you probably saw that at PRL, you know, it's very yeah. brilliant people, but not afraid to laugh or speak their mind. And Zenith worked out well because, again, I got my foot in the door in a company in Mexico and then worked up the ladder. So I, given that, you know, I was at the time one of the top female managers at Zenith. So and being so, in charge of 180, I think it was an $89 million division. So, but yeah, I guess they thought I did OK. <laughs> so so let me take you back to PRL uh, and it's. <clears throat> when the bank was uh, thinking about the, the credit and w would that have been after you uh, invested in the foundry? Yes. It was right after the foundry when all the, when all the uh, military cuts came into play. But the way I handled that situation was found a new bank and closed all the accounts with no warning. <laughs> so you're like, okay, I'm moving on. Yeah, yeah, found another bank and then went through a similar situation two more years after the defense spending came up. Then it went back down and went through another similar similar situation there, but it worked out well. But stayed with the same bank. And to, to this day, I, I always tell them I was never as bad as you thought I was, nor am I as good as you think I am. I mean, it goes both ways. I was everything that we wanted we could get approved we could call and say we're going to borrow half a million and then we'd work it out later and and get the loan i mean it, the, the the ending relationship with the bank was absolutely fantastic fantastic good people and that was, so that was 25 or 30 years later but the, taking yeah. you back five or 30 years um do you remember were you and your mother uh, personally guaranteeing the loan no never personally guaranteed a loan so just it, you had to borrow some money from your mother to put back in the company to to work out more equity in the company. Yeah, the new the new bank didn't know that. Yeah, but we did pay mom back, but we never we never had audited statements, and we never guaranteed a loan. Was your mom while she was funding some of these um, recapitalizations? Was she um, exerting any influence in the business operationally? No, not really. In fact, one day I, I got sick of it and I went to her house, knocked on the door and said, Mom, I quit. And she said, I suggest you get your skinny little ass back in your car because you get back to work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you, when uh, during these days, um, was your sister was working in the business too? Yes. My sister worked in the business before I did. Right. And during these days when you had the uh, the expansion of the foundry, you were trying to bring along the team um, and defense budgets were going up, defense budgets were going down. Did you have a destination in mind for the business? Were you thinking like, I want the business to become this? That's my destination? I think you're always a future visionary, but to be honest, 
you know, when I started, we were doing five-year plans and it was four-year, then it was, let's get through this year. And then I remember, let's get through this day. It was a matter of when, when, you're, when you're trying to survive, you just want to, and we came very, very close to losing it all. But the VP of finance, who, at the time we met Sailor Zimmerman, we, we worked very, very hard together to make sure that we met the covenants and did all that had to be done to, to make it work. I remember one day at Thanksgiving, they called Sailor and I into the bank, which we'd never been into the bank. And it was this huge long board table and they just let us have it. So, but we made it work. So as you um, think about those years and you are thinking about those years going forward, were you always drawn in uh, two directions, i.e., it's not an option. You're going to make it work. But on the other hand, did you desire a life that was more out of the business also? No. Were you free to travel or do whatever? No. In fact, towards the end, I, I, I wasn't taking vacation for years. It, it was all consuming. And I think the ability to want to make it work in the PRL employees who are so gracious for you've met, it, it became all consuming. And it, it's probably, a, it's sort of sad to say that, but that's the truth. I always said if I ran a business like my personal life, we'd be bankrupt. <laughs> so now that you have uh, done the recapitalization with Compass and you have a transition role and uh, you don't have that same responsibility on your shoulders. Are there some changes in your lifestyle that you're dreaming about or contemplating? Yeah, you know, I don't know where the next chapter is going to take me. I was to the point where I was had some health issues, as you're very well aware of. And I also was getting really burnt out, obviously. Uh, but I'm sort of in what you would call the hibernation state, your, your, your stage, which thank God you told me that because... If not, I'd be being very hard on myself right now. Yeah. But I imagine, you know, down the road, I, I don't know if I'll, I always used to move all the time when I was younger. I don't know if I'll end up in a foreign country or what's going to happen. But I would venture to say that if we look down the road right now, where I'll be is nothing that you and I would have predicted. It doesn't surprise me when you said that, I didn't know this about you, but it doesn't surprise me that you said you used to always move when, a lot when you were younger, because I, I can see you as kind of a nomad liking to have a change in scene. Yeah, yeah. But we'll see. I'm still I'm still hibernating. You told me it was okay if I could still hibernate. What are some things you're doing in hibernation? Well, I sleep in. As you know, I'm not a morning person, so that's fantastic. That's great. Yeah, and I'm working on some things in my condo that I should have done. I think I'm going to redecorate it all. I'm also thinking maybe getting a condo in Florida. Oh, great. And I great. thought it would be neat to go to Mexico. I'm just as scattered as I always was, so... Doctor says I have undiagnosed ADHD, which wouldn't surprise you. I wouldn't think it was undiagnosed, Jen. That's, <laughs> That's funny because the last doctor I talked to about it said that consider yourself diagnosed. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, let me tell you, all of my uh, good uh, entrepreneur, owner, manager, friends and clients, there'd be a majority of them who would say, yep, we're a group of ADD dyslexic misfits, but and usually we're the only ones in the room. But when we get together, it's it's really fun. Well, Mr. So, Linton told me that too. He goes, Jan, there's a bunch of you. <laughs> that's for sure. Thank God. So um, as you're thinking about being in hibernation, are, are there some things that 
you are determined to let go of? Yes, I need to let the new management team take its, I've got to let go of PRL. Uh, is, that, is that challenging? Yes and no. Yes and no. I, you know, I understand what it's like to go in there as a new leader and you've got to make your own calls because you've got to rise and fall on your own. You know, it's, it's, uh, I know it was coming. I do have some health issues. I need to take better care of myself and start focusing on myself. So again, the decision was made. I'm not looking back. Yeah, no, I'm not either. But I, I think this is a topic that many people who listen to this podcast who are very successful entrepreneur owner managers are vitally interested in. There's so many of them who are thinking to themselves that their enterprise gives them a sense of real purpose and identity in their lives. And you made it clear from the beginning that you were going to transition on, that, that you were willing to be provide a, a responsible transition if you needed to, but sure. really you're, you're ready to move on. And so I'm just asking, has that been challenging to do? Because it must be on the one hand, you, your head says, yes, I want to move on. On the other hand, your heart is, yeah, but I've done this for 30 years. Correct. Very, very challenging. But uh, we'll, we'll feel, see what you happens. Sense, and you feel a sense of loss? Absolutely. And I think when I there's an absolute sense of loss, but, and I was talking to another former employee that got off when I did and he was part of the, you know, the top team, but I, 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 we were talking about it and I said, just look at it this way that for the past, since I've been there 32 years as CEO and with him there as well, and playing such a crucial role that we provided a lot of families, a lot of good opportunities, a lot of good jobs. And I think the way to deal with it is looked at what you've done I mean, you can't run a company forever, although God knows I tried, but <laughs> I, I, I think you just look at what you did in the past, absorb it. You know, times change. Companies change. We always were changing. If you don't change, you don't survive. And it was time for this major change. So, Yeah, I, I really like your um, your mindset, your construct on that. So our friend Dan Sullivan calls this the gap in the gain. So he would say that you set your goals by looking forward, right? We all do. But one of the things we have to do is measure our progress by looking back over our shoulder at where we came from. Mm -hmm. Look at that, we can get really energized and confident about the future because we can say, hey, look where we came from. Yep. Boy, that's a long ways, right? And we and can you, be so proud of what we had. Yeah. And hopefully in the future, they'll be proud of what they have too, but I just won't be a part of it. Well, you continue to be an owner. Yeah, I know. Is is the fact that you continue to be an owner, is that helpful to this discussion in that you're not completely out? Or is it harming this discussion that you still have the, the somewhat of a, of a foot in that? I haven't even thought about that. You know, when we're you, supposed to have an owner update on Wednesday, which unfortunately I can't make a quarterly update, but uh, I, I guess it will depend upon how well they're doing, but at least I know what's going on, but I don't know if that's a blessing or a curse. Yeah, that's what I wondered, yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. I just can't answer it. Here, I, I think it's got to be true, though, that when you speak to your team and your former team, your employees, your former employees, it must give them great confidence for it to be able to know that Jan continues to be an owner. 
even if a minority owner, that, that you continue to be an owner. I don't think they're aware of that. Oh, oh, I thought when you introduced the whole concept, you told them that. Mm -mm. I probably should have. We just let you know. This is the one thing that's really cool about Compass is that as CEO, I'm being replaced by an admiral. So the, the, Love that. Yeah, yeah, the reason for the, I mean, the employee re meetings were there to introduce a new CEO that has much more impact on their day-to-day -day existence than we do. And we, we had it all set up that my sister and I each spoke and then the admiral spoke and uh, there's some excitement there because PRL is about the mission. Compass is about the mission. We want to keep America safe. And that's probably one of the main reasons we went with Compass is the mission is absolutely the same. Yeah. It's great. So, so you talked about the last 32 years and how even the last portion of the 32 years, you became more and more focused on the business. And I asked you about, you know, doing things outside of the business and you said, nope, I really was focused on the business for those few years. Are you now um, thinking about new habits or new uh, activities? And are you, um, trying out any not yet but i am i'm starting to think yeah i it was funny because you know I, I enjoy walking i have a bike I, I love to golf but i'm not very good at it but i would really enjoy getting that more but i'm still just getting to that stage in this terribly cold winter hasn't helped things yeah. but i also have some health issues that i'm addressing and taking care of and uh, i just want to Right now, I have a really bum shoulder that needs probably to be replaced. I don't know. But, you know, there, there, there are certain challenges there that, that I'm facing. But it's going to be okay, and it's not going to be what we expect. It sucks to be our age, right? Yeah, it really does. I, I, I wish we could get older, be born older and get younger. Uh, I know my uh, my knee replacement surgery is four months old. So I, I feel like I, I know precisely what you're talking about. Yeah, it's never the same, is it? No, no. It's in good shape, but it's not the same. Right. I, I don't want to go on a long tangent here, but I will tell you that as a, a very active person, as I know you are, that's one of the things. That is maybe the single most thing that bothers me about aging, which is when you have a physical ailment, if I injure myself, sometimes I feel like, oh, I'm not going to get that back. Yeah. Or, gee, will I be able to recover from that injury? That's tough, right? Precisely. It starts when you get those damn reading glasses in your 40s. <laughs> That's your first hint. <laughs> You're right. You're right. So, so some of the people listening to this podcast, Jan, are super successful entrepreneurs, but other people would be maybe considering becoming an entrepreneur. Some of them might be students. Some of them might be nascent entrepreneurs. Thinking about your background and thinking about your experience, what advice would you give to a smart, driven, let's say, college student who wants to become an entrepreneur? First of all, it's harder than people indicate. But I have an interview question. I, I always ask weird interview questions because I want to know what's in people's mind and if they're a fit in terms of personality. But I have an interview question where I ask people what determines the ongoing perpetuity of a company, that a company will be here a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now. And it's an interesting question because quality control people will say, well, it's the quality of the product. 
But if you have no sales, I, I said, what if you don't have sales? That doesn't work. And it could be the best quality because you put so much into it. But the, it's funny. Younger people just say how well you treat your employees. And I say, well, what if I pay for five vacations a year for you? And they say, well, you don't need to go that far. But the, the true answer and the real answer and always keep your eye on this is cash flow. That if you're going to start a business, make sure it double. And, it, you know, when we started up the foundry, having worked at Zenith in a startup, we, we thought of every dollar we could think of, and then we doubled it. And we came in within 17000 of that. So if you're going to go for resources, always go for more. See where you can get the funding. But keep your eye on cash flow. Even, you know, we weren't very heavy into budgeting. We did a lot of unconventional things at PRL. We didn't put heavy emphasis on the budget, but we did give people, these are the sales you had last month and these are all the expenses you had last month. And then we'd add back capital because that would make an unfair in inventory. And that's the number they looked at. And that's the number they really got to understand. And I think they appreciate not having to go into budgets and stuff, but they knew at least make that break even. Yeah. Get it to zero. So it's cash flow, cash flow, cash flow. Is that some? Is that a point of view that you and Sailor developed in the, in the hard years? No, it was more from when I came from Zenith, because that's all I did was budgeting. So I was so done with budgets. But it, it was also I, I remember Zenith one time getting six months to get a damn file cabinet approved for the poor guy in the engineering office, and I sort of had a disdain for that when I came in. And I thought, well, how can we do this? And PRL wasn't heavily into budgets at the time, but the way we did it at the end is we'd make our own budgets and then explain it to them because everybody has different strengths. PRL, as you know, has very, very intelligent, but very super focused in their area management team. We wanted them to keep focusing on that area and letting them know that, but that's a bit unconventional. So, did so, I answer your question? I don't yeah, you did. No, no, it's, it's so, uh, so let me ask you, so people listening to this podcast are probably thinking to themselves, wow, here's this woman who ran this business for 32 years, is super successful. She did a recapitalization with this new owner that she obviously uh, has aligned with in terms of strategy. She's uh, going to have uh, a lot of alternatives in front of her, but it probably wasn't all a continuous success story, right? Did you have some professional reversal, reversals or failures, one or two, or did you, do you have one or two that you learned from that you could speak to? Oh, that's so hard for me. I hate SWOT analysis because every threat's an opportunity. If you get your threats figured out as an opportunity, anything that goes wrong is an opportunity. I mean, I, I, I had, we all fail. If, if you don't fail, you don't get better, but just use that as an opportunity, not necessarily a threat. But I do remember at one point I was on, I'm on the Pennsylvania chamber board and I, they had the uh, secretary of DEP, which is Pennsylvania's version of the EPA and they were trying to put through an alternative energy bill within the state, which is a foundry, obviously, would do a lot of damage. And uh, I remember asking her at a board meeting that uh, if alternative energy wasn't was in fact better, why not just let capitalism take its course? And she said, well, that's not true. Sometimes you 
capitalism doesn't work and you need to tell them what to do. And I said, last I heard, we're not in China, we're in the United States of America. And that made her so angry that she audited all our plants. They brought in the EPA. They had cars spying on the foundry with binoculars. So I, one of my biggest things that I needed to learn was control what I say when I say it. But I'm not sure I even did that very well after that. But, you know, you've just got to realize that you are, when you're a CEO, what you say or what you think just has by far greater ramifications than people might realize. And you can use it to, but I tend to be brutally honest and a bit loose-lipped, as you know. So, oh, That's what we love about you. So, so um, you, um, in addition to running um, PRL, you also, uh, as I recall, you can help me out here, but as I recall, you were also, you mentioned the Pennsylvania Chamber of Commerce. You were also on a bank board of directors. You were also, a, did a number of other community uh, leadership things. How did you balance that? Or how did you think about balancing that? Well, at the time, I had a good secretary that helped keep me in control, even after she started working at home part time because she asked to. But uh, which actually, if I divert a little bit here, and I think being a female really helped me get those board positions, particularly in the 90s. I think the me before the Me Too movement, I think it sort of went the law in the early 2000s. But I had the opportunity to advise President Bush, and then I got a bank appointment and had to go through a Senate confirmation hearing because of that, which was really kind of cool. I mean, I got invited to White House Christmas parties, had great experiences being a female. So I diverge a little on that because. So, so say, say more about that. What was the bank that required the congressional approval? Why was that? It was a, it's called the National Consumer Cooperative Bank. And I know, you know, a lot about co-ops, but it was a bank started by Jimmy Carter and then Ronald Reagan, remember David Stockman? Yeah. He said it was right, it started right after that. And he said, the last thing we need is another government bank and he wanted to shut it down. But the board went and talked to him and talked him into going private. But then Ralph Nader got involved. This poor bank has so many people they report to. But Ralph Nader got involved and said, okay, it can go private, but there has to be a government appointee by the president to help ensure it stays, you know, meets its obligation. So I had the opportunity to meet President Bush and he put me on this bank board, but the charter requires a Senate confirmation hearing. Oh, wow. Which is a bit, it, it, it's interesting, but it was a bit overdone. I mean, there shouldn't have to be a, a confirmation hearing for that. It just, but it was a fun experience. You get to go to all the senator's offices the day before. And, and uh, is that bank principally ch uh, charged with making loans to cooperatives? Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's a great bank, great, great ethic, a very similar culture to what PRO. Has it been successful? Yeah, very good. And I was never replaced by Obama. My term was for three years and I got on in 2007. So, so we'll see what happens coming Are up you, now but you're still a member of that bank board i still go every quarter to washington well pre-covid we go we it's kind of a neat bank we we do a lot of loans for alaska we have board meetings in alaska we have one away every year pre-covid in terms of but they they really help a lot of people they do a lot in the new york housing market because there's a lot of co-ops there and condos oh fascinating 
Yeah, it, 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 it was a very unique experience because I didn't know much about co-ops and it's such a passionate, passionate community, rightly so. Yeah, definitely, definitely so. As you know, I have a good friend who's the CEO of a large co-op and he's uh, very involved with the co-op movement and we've often talked about how it seems to be almost an ideal way of corporate governance. Oh, absolutely. It's America's biggest secret. I mean, there's so many co-ops. Ace Hardware is a co-op. Yeah. There's so many out there. Land Lakes is a co-op. There's so many people out there that are, I mean, companies that are co-ops. Yeah. And it's a very interesting model. It's probably America's best kept secret. Yeah. Yeah. So um, thinking about the next chapter, uh, if you think about you know, I'm sure you st- you've stared at the ceiling at five in the morning and thought about your next chapter. What is your intuition whispering to you right now about new things to learn? What is what is life asking you to learn right now? First of all, I'm dead asleep at five thirty in the morning. I'm not staring at the ceiling. You're lucky. I got a one year old puppy, so I'm not. <laughs> but uh, honestly, right now, I think I need to focus on my health and figure out where I'm going from there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, let me ask you to think about getting there. Let's pretend we go to sleep tonight and tomorrow magically we wake up and instead of being um, February 25th, 2021, it's February 25th, 2024, three years later, what will you be working on? Well, my foundation will be well established by then, hopefully helping people in Lebanon County. Uh, that's one thing. And that, and that specifically is the mission of your foundation? I'm debating that right now. Ah, okay. But it will be. I My guess is it will be geared towards Lebanon County. And I am thinking about some scholarships for STEM. Uh, I owe Lebanon a lot. Lebanon County has been very good to me, so we'll see where we'll take it that way. And I, I wanted to name the foundation, the Herzimba Foundation for Hershkowitz, Zimmerman, and Baylor. So that's great. We're working on getting that. Yeah, that they were the part of the amazing team. Yeah. It, it, it is why PRL has done as well as it did. So, so I probably wouldn't be surprised if I woke up in a foreign country at that point. Wow. Yeah, I, I part of me. It's time to give back. It's time to figure out. It's time to get in to more, just more centered, you know, I need to get more centered and start working on me and take myself as seriously as I took the business, but I can never do that, but something along those lines. That sounds like good advice. Yeah. Okay. Um, last question. What's the one misconception that people have about you, even people who know you well, what's the one misconception that they might have that you feel is a misunderstanding? Wow. Great question. I think people don't realize how serious I can be. I can be la- self-deprecating. I can. I'm always. We're always laughing. Always, even at work. But when push to, comes to shove, I can really, really work hard. And I, I hate failure. People know I'm competitive. They know I hate failure. But I, I, I don't think people totally understand how hard I've worked. And the people around me. I mean, it takes a team, as I've said, but. I can come across as really goofy and <laughs> especially when I'm not working. It's, it, it's just, I, I, I think people would probably be surprised how much I really did work. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, I, I agree with that. You know me pretty well. I, I 100% agree with that. I would say it's like sometimes you're very friendly, approachable, laughing style. Some people could think that you're not as serious minded about your goals as you are. And I know you're very, very serious minded about your goals. So I don't get distracted by that. But I could see some people might might be. Yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's a good answer. Jan, I'm um, so lucky to have uh, been with you in Lancaster, Pennsylvania that day when I taught, was talking to your group and you said, I've got to go, but here's my business card. Call me. So, <laughs> the thing I appreciate most about this really is just uh, your friendship. So I just want to thank you for that. Well, I would like to thank you and Bigelow. It's been an honor and a pleasure to work with you. And I think you're probably the only team mergers and acquisitions team out there that could handle myself as well as PRL. And it's been an honor and a pleasure. And I just knew you were the right person for it. And, you know, it took us a while to get there. We had to make some changes. We got some great advice. And thank you ever so much. And I love that Bigelow also focuses on the psychological or the emotional impact of selling a business rather than just the numbers. And we made some rough decisions over the time and absolute great guidance. Thank you so much. I, I, I'm honored to have you as a friend, Peter. Thank you, Jan. Yep. Thanks for being on Positive Enterprise Value. No, thank you. Okay. I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. We believe that entrepreneur owner managers are the most powerful pro-social and pro-economic force on the planet. And it's for that reason that we dedicate our firm Bigelow to working exclusively with them. At Positive Enterprise Value, we freely share our learning so that you can absorb from the experiences of other private business owners with skin in the game, just like you. Bigelow is widely regarded as the M&A advisor that deals exclusively with high-performing entrepreneur owner managers. Our scrappy independent boutique firm only offers one service, that is to help build and someday capture enterprise value. You can find all of the episodes on this podcast on Bigelow's website, which is bigelowllc.com. <laughs>